Tonight I get to talk about one of my favorite subjects, and that is heaven. Uh, if it's not one of your favorite subjects, then you need to study it some more, and you'll know you'll understand why. It's uh, you should uh, you should be glad for it. So um, I, I'm reminded of a, a, a guy, Lewis Meads, was a seminary professor, and one day he asked his class, "Who wants to go to heaven?" Everybody raised their hand. He said, "Who wants to go right now?" Everybody's hands went down. Well, I think when we study more about heaven and what the Bible says about heaven, I think our answer to that question would change. Uh, because part of our problem is we don't know what to expect. And yet my, I submit to you that the Bible tells us more about heaven than most of us realize. Uh, there's that movie, Field of Dreams, baseball movie. In the movie, Iowa Corn Farmer builds a baseball field in the middle of his cornfield, and then one day, Shoeless Joe Jackson shows up. Shoeless Joe's been dead for over 100 years. And he comes up to the farmer and he says, is this heaven? And the farmer says, no, it's Iowa. And, and I think about that and I think, would we recognize heaven if we saw it? Would we know what to expect? For a lot of us, one of the, one of the seminal texts on the subject of heaven is John 14, 2 through 3. We hear it at, at funerals often. I've used it at funerals many, many times. And I've, I've listed it there in the King James Version because that's the version we know. That's the, that's the way we know this verse. In my Father's house, this is the words of Jesus, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So what you'll often hear people say, preachers I mean, when they use that text, especially at a funeral, is something like this. Old Joe never had a mansion in this life. He was a poor man just like me, but he's got a mansion now, and it's the nicest mansion you've ever seen. And think about it, Jesus has been working on it for 2,000 years. Think about how nice that mansion is. And all that's very comforting, but then when you look at the word mansion, you know, it's not in any of the modern versions, and there's a reason for that. That word that the King James Version translated mansion, mansion meant something different in 1613 when King James was being translated. It didn't mean a house like you see in River Oaks, okay? It just meant a place to stay. Literally what Jesus was saying is, my father's house is big enough, there's room for you. Don't worry. I have set aside a spot for you to live with me in my home. The part, most pe part of that passage most people ignore is when it says, I will come again. Jesus isn't talking about what happens to us when we die. He's talking about what happens when he comes back. See, that's the part most people misunderstand because we're so focused on what happens when we die. And we'll get into that in just a moment. But the focus of Scripture often is what happens when Jesus returns. It's not about what happens when we die. So old Joe is definitely, if he knew Jesus, he's definitely in a better place but I would submit to you, he's still not home yet. And I, let me explain what I mean by that. Because what do I mean when I say home? So 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 10. Some of you know part of this, but this I think is a very important text. This is the words of the Apostle Paul. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, 
so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please Him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us, each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So let's just start off with the obvious. Verse 8 tells us, when we die, when we leave this body, we are with Christ. That's good news. That is very good news. As we recall, when Jesus was on the cross, there was a man to one side of him who at the last minute repented. The thief who died next to him said, Jesus, remember me. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus' response in Luke 23, 43 was, today you will be with me in paradise. And that tells us three important things. Number one, it's today. And with all due respect to our Roman Catholic brothers, there is no concept of purgatory in the Scriptures. That's something that you have to go outside of the Bible to, to make up. In Scripture, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. That's good news. Second of all, you'll be with Him. You'll be in the presence of Christ, which is also good news, considering the fact that when He was here on earth, everyone who spent time with Him rejoiced in His presence. Everyone uh, who, who saw Him couldn't get enough of Him. And we'll have that unfiltered presence when we are with Him in heaven. And then the third thing about that statement is He called it paradise. Paradise. Now that's not a Jewish word. It's actually a word that's borrowed from Persian. You might recall that the Persian Empire ruled over Israel for, for a few centuries. Uh, we read about that in, in Daniel and in Esther, for instance. Uh, the Persians had this word, paradise, that referred to the little private garden that a king or a wealthy person would have. So if you've got enough money in Persian society in the ancient world in the B.C. era, you would build a little garden and you would wall it and you'd probably put hedges all around it so that poor people couldn't see into it, so that no one else could get into it. That was just for you and your loved ones, a private little garden where you could relax and enjoy the cool breezes. Don't you find it interesting that humanity began in a garden in the presence of God, and in this image at least, it ends in a garden with God? Now, that's all good news. The bad news is there's not really much more we know about what happens to us when we die. We don't have a whole lot of details. Now, there are clues uh, people say, well, will we recognize one another? I think we will because for several reasons, but one of them is uh, the parable of, of Lazarus and the rich man that Jesus told. Some of you remember this. Uh, a rich man and a beggar named Lazarus both died about the same time. Uh, Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom is the term Jesus uses. We, we know he's talking about heaven. He went to, to be by the side of his father Abraham. The rich man went to hell. The rich man looked up into heaven and could see Lazarus and said, Hey, Abraham, would you send Lazarus down to me to, to bring me some water, to just dip his, water, his finger in some water and put it on my tongue? In other words, Lazarus was recognizable. 
when uh, Jesus saw Abraham and I mean, Elijah and Moses, what we talked about last week, they were recognizable. When Samuel gets conjured up from the, from the afterlife by the witch of Endor for Saul, he recognized Samuel. So I believe we'll be recognizable even though we won't have our final form at that point. But again, there's not that much we know about what happens to us when we die, except that we go immediately to be in the presence of the Lord, and it's a place he called paradise. That's good news, but that's not the focus. See, Paul talks about that in verse 8, but if you're paying attention at all, you know he's not saying, so my goal is to die and be with Jesus. In fact, verses 1 through 4, he says, if this earthly tent is destroyed, we have a building from God. What is he talking about? He's talking about our bodies. Our body is like an earthly tent. It's a temporary dwelling. Some of you, I'm sure, are into tent camping no tent lasts your whole lifetime, does it? Even if it does, it doesn't last forever. A tent is a temporary dwelling. That's our earthly bodies. And by the way, aren't you glad these bodies are only temporary? Aren't you glad you don't have to spend your whole life in the body you and I have now? When this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. He's talking about a different body that we receive. He says, meanwhile, verse 2, meanwhile we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan in our burden, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. What is he saying? Paul is saying, yes, I know that if I die, I will go to be with Jesus immediately. Paul knew more about that state than we do, by the way, because Paul actually had a vision of that state. He talks about it in, in 1 Corinthians. But what he says, what would be better is if I was never unclothed at all. To be unclothed means to die, and then you're outside your body. You, you go to be with the Lord in some other form. He said, what if, what if I get to skip that whole stage entirely, and I go straight from this body to my heavenly dwelling? What if I go straight from this body to the new body Christ has given me? What he's saying is, I, I hope I'm still here when Christ returns so I can receive the resurrection. So I don't even have to have that in-between stage. As wonderful as it'll be, I want to go straight to the best part. Okay? So he's talking about the fact that there will be a bodily resurrection. When? When Christ returns. That much is clear from the Scriptures. There will be a resurrection of the body of all who have believed, and we will inhabit new bodies on a new and redeemed earth. The vision of heaven in the scriptures is consistent. It is an earthly flesh and blood existence. It's not floating on clouds. It's not angel wings. There is absolutely nothing in scripture that says we're going to be angels. That's, that's as unbiblical as saying we're going to be golden retrievers. Uh, we will be human, but with redeemed bodies in a redeemed world. Now that's disturbing to a lot of people. I, I, I've taught this now for about 10 years since I, I, it really, I really caught on to this in Scripture. I've been teaching it for that long, and every time I teach it, there will be people who come to me who have been in church their whole lives, who know the Word of God, who, who are serious students of the Bible, who say, I have never heard this before. And some of them will say, I still don't believe it, because I, I can't believe that I can be 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years old and be in church all my life and never hear this. And I don't have an explanation for why that is. All I can do is show you what the Bible says, okay? So let me do that. 
Several scriptures you see before you, I'll read them out loud, but you have them for you to study at your, at your pleasure. Daniel 12, 2 through 3. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And then in verse 13 of that same chapter, as for you, go your way till the end. You will rest, and then at the end of the days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. I'll give you a couple of other scriptures to look up there if you want to in Psalms and Isaiah. Jesus talked about it several times. This is just one of the times that he talked about it. John 6, 39 through 40. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For, the Father, for my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Again, notice he doesn't say, my Father's will is that I would get them ready so that then when, they, when they die, they'll come be with me. He says, the Father's will is that I would raise them up when? At the last day. All right? Romans 8, 11. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who lives in you. The vision is bodily resurrection. The, the, the key chapter about this whole concept is 1 Corinthians 15. And, and here's one verse from that chapter. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, Easter Sunday was just the beginning. What happened Easter Sunday is going to happen over and over and over again with us. At one time, Jesus was giving us a preview of, yes, this will happen to you. You will have a new body just like I did. We talked about this one a few weeks ago when we talked about the rapture. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-17, For the Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Their bodies will rise. Okay. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. The next line I should have put on there, and the next line says, so comfort each other with these words. Notice, Paul doesn't say comfort each other with the knowledge that when you die, you're going to be with Jesus. He says comfort each other with the knowledge that your bodies are going to rise. Why? Because that's the best part. Going to be with Jesus when you die is great, but the best part happens at the resurrection. That's, that's the emphasis in Scripture. And, and honestly, Christians from most of Christian history got this. If you find old, old gravestones that are more than 200 years old, often they will have some reference to resurrection. They'll say something like, I will arise. Uh, they, they will face east. Why do they face east? Because there was this belief that you would rise toward the, the, the rising sun. People understood the resurrection was our hope. It's only been in the last 200 years that Christians have started fixating instead on what happens when we die instead of what happens when Christ returns. Again, let me emphasize, you die, you go immediately to be with Jesus, but that's not the best part. The best part comes later. The Bible gives us abundant information of what that world will be like and what our bodies will be like. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, and I don't have this on your sheet, but that our, our new bodies will be imperishable, powerful, and glorious. Those are the three adjectives it uses. Imperishable, in other words, there's no more aging, there's no more injury, there's no more illness, there's no more death. How about a body that has no expiration date? 
powerful, I take that to mean we'll be able to do things that we weren't able to do in this world. I don't know what those things are. I don't even want to speculate because I don't want you to hold me accountable And when we're standing on the new earth and you come up to me and say, okay, Jeff, you idiot, you said I was going to be able to fly and I can't fly. I don't know what we'll be able to do, but Paul says our bodies will be powerful and then glorious. Glorious refers to the presence of God. In other words, finally we'll have bodies that are able to stand in the unfiltered presence of the holy God and not, not die. Our bodies will be clean, pure, whole, glorious. The, the new earth is described in lots of in details in lots of passages of Scripture that I did not list for you, but it's easy to find. Just Google it, Google New Earth, you'll, you'll see it. I mean, it, it talks about it talks about eating, it talks about work, it talks about enjoyment, it talks about community. It talks about animal life, people who ask if their pet is going to be there. I don't know if your pet will be there, but there will be animals there. So it's entirely possible that specific animals will be there. I don't know. Again, I don't want to make promises the Bible doesn't make. I will say that whatever God's got planned, I am 100% sure not a single one of us when we see it is going to say, yeah, but God, I thought it was going to have this. Instead, we're going to say, I don't know why I ever worried. You had this. You, you've had far more in mind than I thought. Will there be golf, hunting, fishing, whatever you like to do there? I don't know, but if it's not, there'll be something way better. There's no chance that when we get there, we'll be disappointed. The new earth is the vision. That's what we look forward to. The new body and the new earth. Now, again, some of you might sit, be sitting here saying, yes, but still, that bothers me. I, I, I don't like the sound of that. I like the old vision I had before, where I, where I, I die and then I get my angel wings and I fly off and I, I'm, you know. Well, let me give you four reasons to rejoice in this plan, besides the fact that it's biblical. Number one, it means that God's plan was completely victorious. Let me explain what I mean by that. The way most Christians think we're leaving behind a rotted planet. And that means that in one small sense, the devil wins, right? God created a perfect world. The devil tempted us, led us astray. We ruined that perfect world. And the way a lot of Christians think, God says, okay, I'm getting y'all out of there. Just leave it to die. I'm getting you to a safe place. It's, it's like evacuating before a storm or, or being saved from a burning building. But the way the scriptures tell it, it's not evacuating a ruined planet, it's redeeming that planet. The devil doesn't win in any sense. God gets the world the way it always should have been if we hadn't messed it up in the first place. Romans 8, 19 through 21 talks about this. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. I love that because Paul says, not that we're waiting in eager expectation, but the creation. It's like the world itself, rocks and trees and, plant, and plants and, and animals are all saying, okay, Lord, make it happen. I'm ready. I'm ready for this to happen. I'm ready to get well. I'm ready to be what I ought to be. 
it's, it's looking forward to a world that, in a sense, is pregnant and is giving birth to something better. Okay? Good news is coming. Good things are coming. Second reason to rejoice in this, it makes life on this earth more meaningful. Let me explain what I mean by that. If this world is all passing away, and there's going to be nothing left to it, there's a temptation to say, why worry about the problems of this world when we're getting out of here anyway? Why worry that there's poverty? Why worry that there's war? Why worry that there's pollution? Why worry about any of this stuff because it's all going away anyhow? We're getting out. But if God is in the process of redeeming this world, then we should care what happens in this world. There's an interesting thing. I told you 1 Corinthians 15 is the, is the key chapter about the bodily resurrection. The last verse of that chapter, after 57 verses of Paul talking about you are going to be raised to new life. You are going to get a body that is imperishable and powerful and glorious. After 57 verses of that, here's the way he finishes his thought. He says, therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Now that, is, that is not what you expect him to say. You expect him to say, you're getting a new body, so don't worry because everything's going to be taken care of. No, he says, so you should work even harder because everything you do for the Lord now lasts forever. And again, here's where, we here's where we're doing some speculating, but I like what N.T. Wright says. N.T. Wright is, is a New Testament scholar. Um, he says that it's going to be like when we get to heaven, when we get to the new earth, we're going to realize that all along God was using us to build his new world. We're going to be like uh, craftsmen and, and uh, carpenters who've been building a new building, a new city. We're not the architect. We don't know what's going on. We just do what we're told day to day, day to day. And in the end, when the whole thing's done, we'll look at it and we'll, we'll praise the architect because he did it. But we'll be able to look at one little part and say, okay, that was mine. I got to do that. That, that somehow in eternity, our work will be preserved. I don't know what that looks like. But one way I think of it, and I may be wrong, but here's the way I think of it. I think of it like this. Let's imagine there's a woman who for years taught teenagers in Sunday school. And then when she got to where she couldn't understand teenagers anymore, she moved on and started serving homebound adults. And she just did that faithfully. Never got any praise or glory, but on the new earth, she's constantly bumping into somebody who comes up to her and says, hey, remember me? I was in your class back in 1962, back in 1978, and you told me this, and here's the difference it made in my life. And I shared that with my kids, and now they've, they're doing this. And, and then she meets other people, and, and they say, do you recognize me? No, I don't. Well, when you saw me before, I was on a walker, and I was all bent over, and I didn't really have my right mind about me. But now I, I'm, I'm free, and I'm full, and I'm complete. And I remember the love you showed me when everybody else had forgotten me. And over and over again, she has that conversation. You know, we hear about the rewards in the next life, and a lot of us picture a gold watch or a Corvette or whatever, but what if our rewards are seeing the fruit of what God did through our ministry? I don't know. I'm just speculating here. But Paul definitely says, because we know there's a new world and a new body, work even harder because your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Third, it will feel like home. Again, if the vision you have of heaven is up in clouds, misty, 
mysterious. It's hard to get excited about that. You just have to sort of say, well, I'm sure it's a better place, but I don't really... This is why I think a lot of people would say, I, I don't really know that I want to go to heaven. This is why a lot of people secretly, no one's going to say this out loud, are worried that eternity in heaven is going to be boring. Because secretly, I think they think it's going to be like church. Yeah. But Philippians 3, 20 through 21 says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like His glorious body. So there, again, another resurrection to the physical, another reference to the physical resurrection, but it's also saying that's our true home. That's really where we're from. We've forgotten it. We don't recognize it now, but we'll, we long for it. And I think about, some of you don't have this experience, but I grew up in a particular place. My parents still live in the house my, uh, that I grew up in. They actually inherited it from my mom's grandparents, so it's been in the family for forever. And when I go there, which I did a couple weekends ago, it still feels like home. It's not as much like home as it used to be because my grandparents are dead and, and various things have changed. But some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you have fond memories of where you grew up. Some of you don't. But if you do, what would you give to spend a week in the home of your childhood? What would you give just to, you know, time travel back then and just spend a week with your mom and dad, with your grandparents, with your brothers and sisters, and everything you grew up with? I mean, that, that's priceless, isn't it? And I believe the new earth rather than being this mysterious place where it'll take us forever to figure things out, is going to feel like going home. We're going to recognize things. We're going to recognize people. And there's going to be mysterious things too, things that we haven't expected, but it will feel like home. And then fourth, deep down inside, that's what we all really want. That's what we long for. See, every time... You're watching the news and you get mad and you say it shouldn't be this way, which is probably a daily occurrence for you. You're really expressing homesickness. Every time, every time you say to yourself, man, it sure would be nice to be young and healthy again. Sure would be nice if this knee worked again. It sure would be nice if this back wasn't hurting anymore. That's homesickness. You're expressing a longing for something that is real, that you have in, in, your, in store for you, it's just not here yet. When you think about places you've never been and you, and you think, well, I guess I've missed my chance. No, you actually haven't. When you think about things that you wish you would have done because you were working too hard or you were raising too many kids, well, you haven't missed your chance. See, we're yearning for what we have in store for us, which is the new earth, which is the resurrected body. Let me go back to what I said at the beginning when, when Lewis Meads asked his class, who wants to go to heaven? Everybody raised their hand. And he said, who wants to go now? And all the hands went down. Then he said, okay, let me ask a question a different way. Who wants to live in a world where there's no divorce, there's no war, there's no disease, there's no death, where there's, where there's meaningful work for everyone, where everyone has enough to eat, where everyone loves one another, where we're constantly in the presence of a God who loves us. Who wants to live in a world like that? And they all raised their hand. He said, then heaven is where you want to be right now. Think about that. 
Every yearning of your heart is really a yearning for that place. And, and the, where this boils down into the Christian life, because I think what a lot of people say is, okay, that's nice, but we can't, we can't think about that too much. You don't want to be so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. You ever heard that phrase? You know, that phrase is nowhere in scripture. And I frankly have never met a person who's so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. I've met a lot of people who are so earthly minded, they're no heavenly good. And I've met people who are too religious, right? Who, who are too churchy, but not too Christ-like. See, to be heavenly minded is to, is to be of abundant earthly good. Because when you're totally heavenly minded, you're willing to give yourself away. You're willing to say, yeah, I can share this money because I've, I've got greater treasures waiting for me. I can, I can volunteer my time because it doesn't matter if I get to do everything on my bucket list in this life. I've got a better world coming. I can, I can serve God until the day I die instead of saying, well, I've done enough. It's time for me to enjoy my retirement. No, I can serve God with all I have right now knowing that better things lie ahead in a world with no lack of resources and no lack of time. And so we find that anything we give to Christ, remember what he said, whatever you give from me, you'll receive back hundredfold. We never really sacrifice anything. That's the good news. Well, that's part of the good news. The good news is too much to tell. So I hope I, hope I haven't rocked your world, but if I have, I hope it's in a good way. Uh, and and I, I welcome any questions. I, I, I will share this. One of the books that set me on this path of really, really exploring what the Bible says is a book simply titled Heaven by Randy Alcorn. Some of you who went to Glen Airy with us a couple of years ago know about this book because I talked about it then. And um, It's a big book. It'll take you a long time to read. I don't agree with everything in it. But Alcorn does a good job of exploring everything the Bible says about heaven and really showing us how to think about it and get out of this rut of thinking, well, heaven's beyond our understanding. It's not. God gives us enough information to make us excited, and we should be excited. All right? So let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I'm so grateful that your plan for us is an eternal plan, and it's a plan that, uh, Lord, it's going to redo and undo all the harm that our sin has caused and bring about full redemption for this world. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us, Lord, to be sure of the things that you tell us in your word, and Lord, not to read into it what we want to see, but, but to focus on the things you do tell us and to find their reasons for hope and let that hope guide us to the point where we will not be discouraged and will not be uh, trapped into thinking we have to find joy for ourselves, but to find hope and joy in you. And Lord, we look forward. We pray, amen, come Lord Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.